It's good to see such a crowd. All right, we've been engaged with the Gospel of Mark, and we continue now in Mark 9, beginning at verse 30 through 41. This is the Word of God, and I ask that you pay attention to it as such. Verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterward will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Amen. It's the word of the Lord. As we've seen in the last couple of chapters, a number of important, noteworthy, actually, uh, incidents have been occurring in Jesus' ministry. These are important to the nation's very, uh, rather, he's been performing these lately in the last couple of chapters in the northern regions of the nation of Israel in an area of the town of Caesarea Philippi. Just a little bit northwest of that is also Mount Hermon, where it's believed the transfiguration took place. Peter's confession in chapter 8, verse 29, is one of these important events. Jesus' first announcement of his impending suffering and his death and his resurrection, that's 831. Peter, of course, rebuked Jesus, and Jesus' counter-rebuke in Marks 832 and 33. He already mentioned transfiguration in chapter 9, and the healing of a demon-possessed boy, which we looked at in some detail last week. All these events occurred in the area of Caesarea Philippi and, of course, Mount Hermon. After these things, however, They departed from there, and they headed back down south. They were passing through Galilee, right through the region of Galilee. They were on their way to Jerusalem. Isaiah 50, that's the Old Testament, Isaiah 50, verse 7. It prophesies that the Messiah was going to do this, that he would set his face like flint en route to Jerusalem, that he would get there. And about 700 years later, Jesus now is doing just that here in Mark 9. And by the way, this is the last time that we'll find in Mark that he's um, 
telling us that Jesus had spent any time in Galilee until after the resurrection. That's not really indicative of anything, except that Jesus has determined, again, to set his face like flint, so to speak. His focus is now more on the Jerusalem events. In other words, it's going to become the apex of history, of all of human history. So that's also Mark's focus. In other words, Jesus is about to ultimately suffer and die. The activity of the opposing forces, right? That's the will of God against the will of Satan. Those events, excuse me, those events which will change the course of our human history forever. It did. They're crescendoing here to a climax. And so Jesus is needing to spend some private time to drive this point home to his students, to his disciples. He needed some privacy to teach them about these things. And therefore, he embarked on this trip. And as he was doing so, practically, he tried to keep a low profile. Tried to fly under the radar, if you will, to avoid these crowds that had been prompting him and his disciples. We read in verses 30 through 32, they went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. It seems that Jesus sought to avoid the crowd so that he could concentrate on teaching the disciples. There was something he really needed to get into their brains and into their hearts a little bit more. We know what that was. I just alluded to it. He returned to the message that they had heard in Caesarea Philippi, the one that shocked them and the one that, frankly, they didn't didn't want to hear. That Jesus was going to Jerusalem to be betrayed and to be killed, but also to rise on the third day after his death. Now, you know, Edgemont, we... We live in the 20, what is it, 21st century? 22nd century? Okay, we live in 2023. All right, and we get to look backwards on the, uh, on the New Testament. We, look to, uh, we get to look at history back towards the cross, and we have the clarity of the New Testament. So let's not be too hard on the disciples for not understanding what Jesus was saying to them. They simply couldn't wrap their minds around the idea that the Messiah was going to die. Furthermore, they couldn't bring, they couldn't bring themselves to ask the Lord for an explanation. They were chicken. It doesn't say chicken. Verse 32 says that they were afraid to ask him. And we're only left with the ability to surmise why that was. But they probably had a fear that they had maybe maybe heard this before. Or a fear of being berated, if you will, for not having previously heard the Lord or misunderstood the Lord. Or they may have not wanted to hear any more forecasts about this dying and suffering stuff because they knew that they were going to have to participate in it. As Christians, as followers of Christ... We follow in his footsteps. Surely a very uncomfortable topic from time to time. 
Jesus had just announced again that he would be delivered into the hands of men to be killed. In Luke's version, chapter 9, verse 51, we read that when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That's the, that's the like Flint characterization in Isaiah 50 that we just mentioned. Actually, Isaiah 50, verse 7. I think we're going to get a lot of this here. It's just my eye running, causing sinus issues. But anyway, Jesus was accepting, by the way, of this destiny. But he wasn't accepting of it passively. He was going to make sure that it happened. He was staunchly determined to see it through. And why is that? He was so adamant about this, going to Jerusalem, even to the point of saying that a distraction from it was the devil's work. Remember Peter? Get behind me, Satan. It was in chapter 8. Peter rebuked Jesus. Jesus was adamant about going to Jerusalem because it was there at that time in all of world history that he would fulfill the promise that God had made in the Garden of Eden. He made it to Adam, to Eve, and to Satan. That a Messiah would crush the head of the serpent. Stamping out sin. And that by doing so, God was going to reconcile through this Messiah all of mankind to himself. A right relationship with the Father. So at at Jerusalem, what awaited the Lord? It was the cross. His death on the cross was the Father's will so that you and I could avoid that penalty for sin. Jesus was going to continue to be obedient to the Father's will, which was to suffer at the hands of evil men, sinful people, so that a bloody death, not an injection in the arm that puts you to sleep or overdosing on a pill, a bloody, painful death of the spotless lamb was going to be, well, so that it wouldn't be thwarted, Jesus was going to make sure that he was obedient to God the Father. This atonement, this substitutionary death of God's chosen people, his church, this atonement for mankind's wickedness must happen. Must. What God promises, God delivers. I want to take a moment here, if I may, to address what Jesus calls himself in verse 31. Maybe some confusion on your part. Maybe you've thought that this term meant something different than what Jesus thought. But he calls himself the Son of Man. The Son of Man. This was Jesus' favorite title for himself. You may think that this refers to his humanity. It sounds like it, Son of Man. He was born of a woman, Mary. It makes sense, and you wouldn't be wrong about that. If you apply that relationship to the title, Son of Man... For he was born, of course, of Mary. She carried him in in her womb. But there's a better explanation, one that the disciples would have, or at least should have understood, because the term son of man is rooted in the Old Testament. It's rooted in deity. And it comes from the Old Testament book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And Daniel 7 The prophet, he describes his vision of God, which he calls the Ancient of Days. That's a capital A and a capital D, the Ancient of Days. 
He's describing God. And in his passage, Daniel describes Jesus, God the Son, getting coronated as the King of Kings. And I'm going to read that for you now. It's Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14. In my vision at night, I looked. And there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed So this name that Jesus applies to himself, Son of Man, is a self-proclaimed testimony that he, Jesus, is proclaiming to be God, claiming to be, declaring to be God. To be this one like the Son of Man that Daniel had a vision of. The one to whom is given all authority, all glory, all power. The one who is going to be worshipped by kings and all peoples and of all nations and of all languages. For how long? All eternity. Okay? Son of man. Okay, now in verse 32, Jesus and the 12 disciples, they've made it to Capernaum. Uh, It's along the Sea of Galilee. If you want to turn to the end of your Bible, there's probably a map there that shows you where Capernaum is along the Sea of Galilee. And this town, for a little bit of history, it was the center often of Jesus' ministry in that Galilean region. Capernaum is mentioned in all four Gospels. It happened to be the home of Matthew, right, Levi, the tax collector. It was his hometown. It was also in Capernaum that Jesus healed a man that was possessed by an evil spirit. It was there in a house that uh, a lame man was lowered through the roof, only to be forgiven of his sins. That was unexpected. And then subsequently healed of his lameness. But despite those miracles and others, it was also the city, Capernaum was the city that lacked much faith. And we know that because Jesus, along with Bethsaida and Chorazin, he cursed it. Nevertheless, they're here in Capernaum in a house. It is possible, though not likely, it is possible that Jesus owned this house. It's far more likely that it's the home of a friend or a follower who had a young family. Verse 33 and following says this. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what, do you, what, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Who would that be? And it's God the Father. Jesus is doing the work of the one who sent him, God the Father. Now, on the journey earlier in that day, Jesus had overheard the disciples talking, actually arguing with each other. And so now in this house, they were, they're gathered and they had, now Jesus has an opportunity for what we might call a, a teaching moment. 
because the Lord knew that they had been debating and what they had been bickering about. Which of them would be considered greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It sounds kind of childish, actually. Who's the greatest? But when Jesus inquired as to their argument's topic, they were kind of quiet about it. They remained silent. Apparently, they were too embarrassed. probably were ashamed to admit to God what the desires of their hearts really were. They wanted to be important. They wanted to be great. They wanted prominence. They wanted to be better. Each one wanted to be better than the other guy. At least to some degree, we want to be like them, I think. We're all filled with pride, aren't we, to some extent? Are you aware of yours? Do you confess the sin of your misplaced pride often? Being enamored with greatness is part of our American culture, I think. I see it every time I turn on the the news. I watch a lot of sports. I read a lot of apps. I know what's going on in the in the nation and in the world, and we are fixated on the GOAT, the greatest of all time, G-O-A-T. We want to know who the, who the greatest quarterback is. We want to know and debate and argue about who the greatest baseball player, the hitter or pitcher might be, the greatest president, the greatest, I don't know, you fill in the blank, right? The greatest, blah. People love to be memorialized and elevated even for those who are shy and quiet, quiet and deferent, they still have a heart for themselves. Wouldn't you know it? Even churches do that. I'm not saying this is wrong to some, some extent, but we've got we to gotta look at why these things are so. Churches, they bestow status on people. Again, nothing wrong with this. There's... The intent, the heart, is what's, um, you know, the motives is what God will judge here. Perpetual honor we bestow on people, emeritus. Again, nothing wrong with that, but why are we doing that? This book is given in honor of Mr. and Mrs. McGillicuddy. All right, they gave some money, so we're going to put their name in the book. I hope McGillicuddy's not in the book. I just made that up. Mrs. McGillicuddy, she baked apple pies for 89 fellowship meals over the course of 89 years. Or this pew is donated by Dr. and Mrs. So-and-so. It's not enough to give the money for a pew, but you've got to have the brass plaque on it. Something, well, people want their name on stuff. They just do. If you want somebody to come and publicly speak and they don't want to, just let them know that their name's going to go on something. They'll probably get, get it, get, it'll probably get their attention. Something you don't know about me is that I occasionally like looking through cemeteries. This interest of mine, it's not in a morbid sense, but seeing tombstones of individuals and of families, it reminds me that the Bible's correct about the brevity of life about the inevitability of all of man to have a destiny in the grave. Of course, until the Lord returns. 
I'm also intrigued by what people leave on their tombstones, right? What, the, what their message is, their final message is to memorialize themselves. They are um, last words, right, to the world that they're leaving behind. You'd think that's the most important thing that they could ever speak. And by such, you'd think those words, um, you know, tell of their heart. Something that they want to, 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 to be important forever for those who are visiting or reading their gravestone. It's an, it's an ongoing testimony. The best ones, I think, are simply names and dates, maybe followed by a, a brief Bible verse that commends their souls and their spirit and their salvation to the Lord. But some go to their grave declaring what a great person they were their status, or their command of something while on this earth. I'm not going to provide you with detailed examples because some of our forefathers and foremothers, they've done this. I find that sort of sad, but to be fair to the dearly departed, maybe it wasn't them who did it. Maybe it was us. Maybe it was their living family who made that choice. Anyway, you can often tell a lot about a person by what's written on their tombstone pointing to self or pointing to God. Jesus, he, he broke their silence, their embarrassment or their shame. He broke their silence by saying this. He gave to them a lesson in reality, not in theory, but a practical reality. In verse 35, if anyone would be first, he says, he must be last of all and servant of all. And since a picture is worth a thousand words, and I think it is, Jesus lifts up a child into his arms and he demonstrates what is really an object lesson. Picks up this little boy. What does it mean to be a servant? I'm going to let you create your own definition of that now in your mind, but once you have it all worked out in your mind, then you have to add to your definition of all. Servant of all. Unless you're an egomaniac, and I can think of one or two in the news, but unless you're an egomaniac, it's pretty easy to be a servant of someone that you really respect or someone that you know is better than you or perhaps has a lot more authority than you. You'll do what that person says. But can you apply that servanthood, that requirement to be a servant? Can you apply that to someone that you despise? Someone who's wronged you? To someone who's socially and maybe educationally far beneath you? Maybe someone who's much younger than you or who lacks the experience that you have? Can you look Philippians 2, 3 in the face and say that you do nothing out of selfish ambition? that you consider others more significant than yourself. That you're always looking to the interests of others. Servant of all. (laughs) Makes Christianity hard. Greatness, Jesus says, is found in humility. In the simplicity and reliance of a child. Greatness, Jesus says, is found in service. Greatness, 
is found in magnanimous, large love, especially when hatred seems justified. If you want to know what that ultimately looks like, humility, service, and love, in spite of the right to be indignant, then look at the cross. Jesus, the one who performed miracles and burdened his body with service to the extent of exhaustion. If you look to the cross, you'll see the king of all creation, of all of us. You'll see him on the cross. He's emptied emptied himself of glory. That's humiliation. Just one measly example about how Jesus served in the when he was exhausted, I won't even, just as a quick aside, I mean, he actually rose up to speak to serve somebody next to him on the cross to help save his, to, 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 to bring him to God, to save his soul. Today you'll be with me in paradise. That must have been pretty exhausting, you would think, hanging on the cross. You'll remember the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark 6. I hope you'll recall it. Jesus and the disciples, they're in need of a great rest. They're trying to find a, a place to retreat to, but they can't rest. There's crowds, since Jesus gives his time and his energy to these crowds. The Lord, he served his friends. He served his enemies. And he served the, the faceless or the nameless masses. Greatness is found in that example of putting oneself last in the name of Jesus. I want you to hear that again. In the name of Jesus. You can give someone a drink of water, but that gesture, however kind it may be, it's going to burn up in the test in the last days as to whether or not your good works are of the Father are of spiritual worth in Christ if it's not done in Jesus' name. They are eternally worthless. They're kind, but they're eternally worthless because they're not done in Jesus' name. Verse 37, whoever receives one child in my name. It's a qualification that's important. Verse 41, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ. In other words, belong to Christ in my name or because of me. The lesson to the disciples, I hope you've gotten it by now, it's pretty obvious. They were not to consider themselves great. In fact, they were to be a servant of all in the name of God. But they weren't quite there yet, were they? You know as well as I do that at some point, that at this point rather in the reading, they were a hodgepodge mess. At least spiritually speaking, they were. James and John, sons of thunder. I don't think so, not yet. They're getting there. Wishy washy Peter, who staunchly claims, I'm all in. No, 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 wait, I'm not all in. I'm kind of in, but I'm kind of out. And then later on, count me in again. Well, until the cock crows three times. Then I'm out. Peter's, literally this morning, driving here to worship service, 
there's a squirrel on the road doing one of these numbers, not really sure whether or not to go this way or that way to get out of the way of my tire or something. That's Peter. Peter's the squirrel. The disciples were certainly not great. And what's more, whatever point of goodness or greatness they would eventually get to, it wasn't their doings. It would be Jesus's. It would be God's who grew them up into spiritual maturity. It would be because Jesus made them able to set themselves aside, not because they pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps. All right, and finally, I want to look at the last verses of this morning's text, verses 38 through 41. I'll read them now. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Excuse me. Here again. Here again the disciples, John in this case, he's holding holding himself up as special. We tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. He wasn't part of our group. He wasn't part of our club. He didn't raise his hand to commit to our bylaws. You know what that reeks of? It reeks of a spirit of exclusivity and of pride. But we need to take away from this conversation amongst John and Jesus that there is no exclusivity within the corporate, the body, right? The corporate believers of Christ, those who are in Christ. If there's anything that cries for humility, it's that salvation's provided by grace. By nothing contributed, nothing contributed from the person. Those who are in Christ, by Christ, they know that they have bread that was given to them. And that bread needs to be shared with other beggars. That bread is the bread of life, that's Jesus. Believers, the saved, they don't hang on to Christ greedily or secretly or proudly. The club of Jesus, if I can put it that way, is the church. And membership into it isn't through social status. It's not through personal skill sets or relationships or by rushing it like a frat with donations or like a, a club, country club with fees. This church has no walls within it. Unity among believers. Unity amongst believers is essential. That said, there are differences with what I call within the pale of orthodoxy, P-A-L-E, within the pale of orthodoxy. That's within the sphere of those who believe the major, right, the critical doctrines of the Bible, many of which we confess this morning together in the Apostles' Creed. And that's okay, those differences. It's okay to have differences. Christians in the Presbyterian tradition... The Baptist tradition and many other Christian denominational traditions, they come down on different sides of certain biblical issues that are not critical to salvation. 
such as the practice of infant baptism versus believer's baptism. But the majors, right, the majors, the essence of Christianity are these. It's salvation in Jesus alone. Who saves by grace alone. Through faith alone. To the glory of God alone. To his glory. And all this revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. Whose word is the ultimate and perfect and final authority. It's important for us to realize that those are table stakes that I just read for true Christianity. If a church or a person claims not to embrace those, any of those, call them tenets of faith or major, major doctrines, major tenets of faith, those biblical positions, then they're actually outside of the church. Maybe they just don't understand them. But if they believe the opposite of those things, then they're outside of Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that we exclude people. We don't exclude them from fellowship. We don't exclude them from worship just because they worship differently than we do or who don't share, perhaps, in the same confessions as we do or who don't interpret biblical passages like we do. There's room for differences. There are gray areas within that pale of orthodoxy. We don't exclude those who are nevertheless ministering in the name of Jesus. Surely, surely we have to appreciate and embrace authentic ministry wherever we find it. And there's a lot of good ministry and right ministry and godly ministry happening outside of our doors. But Edgemont, we need to be discerning, okay? Which means that you need to know your Bible. Because you must distance yourself from heresy, from injurious, unbiblical teaching. Now, after years with Jesus, the disciples were still lacking discernment. So there must be something in that that isn't developed quickly. However, a good place to start is always to appreciate everything that's done in the name of Jesus. This doesn't mean that we get to heaven by doing good things, such as giving a cup of water to a thirsty person. It's helpful. That's nice. But Christ knows, of course, every way that he's honored. So let's not stop doing good works. That's what we're called to do. We're not saved by good works, but we're called unto them. In the case of the disciples, it was imperative for Jesus to get these points across because when they get to Jerusalem, they'll need to understand it then, really understand it then. And they'll never really, really get it until after the resurrection. So as we go from this house of worship, let's remember this week and beyond, of course, that the greatness, your greatness, is not defined by your willingness to live in the name of, I'm sorry, it is defined rather by your willingness to live in the name of Jesus, which again demands humility, demands your service. 
ultimately, it demands your love. All right? That's how we serve. We serve all in the name of Christ. For that is what's eternal. Now let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we're but works in progress. We're sinful creatures who are in need of your merciful forgiveness and your grace to sin less frequently. We ask that your Holy Spirit would work in us that conviction and that contrition, right? The repentance that draws us to humility and to thankfulness, all resulting, Lord, in our serving you by serving others. To your glory alone, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.